1: And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com.
2: Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with a limited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid and limited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited time men's collection for the everyday guy. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Hi, and welcome back to the Carol Markowitz Show
3: on iHeartRadio. Last week, I talked about men putting off parenthood and delaying having real relationships. But of course, it's not just men who do this. In 2022, the average age for an American woman having her first child hit 30 for the first time. In the never-ending mommy wars of our time, one of the ongoing battles is the ideal age of motherhood. The shots are usually lobbed at older moms. They put off having babies because they wanted to focus on their careers, goes this assumption. And now they're, quote, granny moms who lack the energy to deal with children. I recently reread a Molly Finn piece in the Wall Street Journal from a few years ago that fired in the other direction. She argued that being an older mother is better than being a younger mother, despite the fact that she is indeed sometimes mistaken for the child's grandmother. Tongue in cheek? Finn called older or geriatric mothers Jerry's and says they're better than younger mothers because they're tanned, rested, and ready for motherhood in a way younger mothers just aren't. She writes, quote, what about the stamina needed to keep up with a child, you ask? But we Jerry's have the advantage of not being regularly hungover from youthful self-indulgence. We have only three apps on our iPhones, and we waited a long time for children we're energized, focused, and almost always happy to see our kids. Also, we have watched younger folks make mistakes and learn how to conserve energy, end quote. I have no quarrel with people who have kids later in life. I myself am what used to be considered an older mother, though, of course, as the average age of motherhood moves ever upward, my ages of 32, 35, and 38 at the time of the births of my children don't seem quite so ancient. But if there was a way to redo everything, my ideal would have been to have children much earlier. My husband and I knew each other for a decade before we started dating. And that's like a lot of lost and wasted time. I used to say he was the Jerry to my Elaine, really minus the romantic beginning because Jerry and Elaine dated first. We were just friends you know, together all the time platonically for a long, long time. In my rewrite of this history, we would have gotten together in our 20s and our kids would be heading to college right now. Older parenthood is hard, even as Finn notes, you know, fewer hangovers, maybe. Older parenthood takes its toll in so many ways. It's harder to lose the baby weight You don't look a little tired when you don't get enough sleep. You look like the crypt keeper. It's harder to chase around babies, you know, who are intent on plunging headfirst into everything. And, you know, the lament from a young person putting off parenthood who says, I just want to live my life first, explore the world, do things. The shocking truth that's unknown to 20 somethings, including myself at that age, is that there really is no time when you don't want to live your life. I'm in my 40s and I still want to do all those things that people consider living their lives. I want to go out to dinner, meet new people, travel. My husband and I have been incredibly lucky that our children have involved grandparents. We have an amazing situation that we get to do all of that. But the older you are when you have kids, the older your parents are and the less ability they will have to help. There's this idea that there comes a point in your life when everything can pause for a bit as you take time off to have a baby, secure in your finances and the knowledge that your career will pick right up where it left off. And it doesn't really work like that for women or for men. At the start of your career, you're new and mostly expendable. As you climb your career ladder, you take on more responsibilities, making it harder all the time to step away. And that's the thing about having kids. There's no right or wrong time to have them. Are you ready for a baby? No, no one actually is. And the truth is you're still allowed to do, you know, the things that we call bucket list, but now we refer to bucket list, even not kicking the bucket, but having a baby, you're still allowed to go bungee jumping or procrastinate on writing that novel you swear you're going to write after the babies arrive. There's no rule that says you have to own your own home or have made partner at your firm. And you can have all the money and still be a terrible parent or have very little of it and win at parenthood daily. Aim for the parenthood winning and let the rest fall into place. The other problem with putting off parenthood, of course, is that baby-making is more art than science. In general, a lot has to go right for a baby to be produced. You have to meet the right person. You have to be fertile. They have to be fertile. And even then, there's no guarantee everything will work as it should. So much of life is luck, and meeting the right person is a huge part of that. Putting off kids because you haven't met the right person makes sense, Putting off kids because being an older parent is better is foolishness. Coming up next, an interview with Miranda Devine. Join us after the break.
1: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year
3: Hi, and welcome back to the Carol Markowitz Show on iHeartRadio. My guest today is Miranda Devine, columnist at the New York Post and author of the best-selling book, Laptop from Hell. Thank you so much for coming on, Miranda.
2: Great
5: to be with you, Carol.
3: So I have an admission to make to you. And I remember the very first time I read you, I, I just looked it up. It was 2019. It was your third piece at the Post. And you wrote about how marijuana was a really big deal, and that it came with mental health risks for some people, and that it was becoming a problem in New York. And I remember reading it and being like, oh, "I disagree with all of this. This is crazy. Who is this person?" Um, and I remember being like, "This is so square." And of course, I've come around to most of what you most of what you wrote there. Um, so, how does it feel? Do you get that a lot, like people saying you are right? <laughs>
5: That's so interesting. Um, Yeah, look, I I don't know, sometimes I guess people don't really like to admit that and, you know, I'm often wrong myself, but um, the drugs thing is something that I've been writing about for, you know, more than 20 years. Um, I was a police reporter early on and I just saw the um, detrimental effect that drugs had, um, particularly on people at the bottom of the ladder Um, and, you know kids who grew up with addicted parents. And, you know, if there was one thing I could do to wave a magic wand to cure a lot of the ills that plague Western societies, it would be to just ban, uh, get rid of illicit drug use. Um, and I think it's, um, you know, I mean, when I was young, I was just as susceptible to um, the sort of pop culture ideas about Right. illegal drugs you know i i joined some stupid you know marijuana legalization party when i was at university I, you know it was cool um but when you actually look at the um the scientific studies that have been done particularly on marijuana which is seen as such a um particularly in america seen as such a benign drug um and you see that the very large risks of psychosis um you know once once your brain has becomes psychotic, has had a psychotic episode, um, it's more prone to them for the rest of your life. And that begins the descent into insanity. And you see it all around you in the streets of New York and other big American cities with homeless people who are homeless because they're mentally ill.
3: Yeah, I think you also, you predicted in that piece, what ended up happening in New York was that the full legalization has made it so the whole entire city smells like weed now. Um, and, and it you know, people say, oh, it was always like that. No, it wasn't. I grew up in New York. No, it was not. Um, you know, people used to be covert about smoking. Now mm. it's out in the open. Uh, I think I, also New York is the only city where you're allowed to do that. I, all the other kind of hippie cities who legalized it, which legalized it, um, didn't legalize it to smoke in the street anywhere you wanted. And I think mm-hmm. New York is the only place that's okay. Uh, So I think that piece was really, I went back and I read it and it was, it's really interesting, you know, how much I've learned in, (laughs) in just a few years, but how, how right you were about where New York was heading with that.
5: That's interesting um, that you say that. Um, I mean, why did you change your mind? Was it just because you saw the chaos and um, disorder in New York over the years?
3: Yes. I, I think I had that impression, like you said, where, Look, I, you know, I used to be a pothead. I, um, you know, was very much into the idea that if we just legalized uh, that everybody would be able to use it, you know, kind of the way that we have a drink and um, it wouldn't be just a problem. And I think that what we've seen um, and and you're right about the psychosis stuff, too. I think that uh, there's a lot of research that has come out in the last few years that does make the link between uh, serious marijuana use and psychosis in people who maybe were susceptible to it already. Yeah. Um, but I just think New York—I've seen such a downward spiral. And one of the things is, you know, I just remember when we still lived in Brooklyn, walking by somebody smoking a joint in Park Slope, like you know, eight thirty a.m. as I'm taking my kids to school. And if we saw somebody, you know, having a drink on the corner at eight thirty a.m., we would register that that's a problem. But because it's weed, it's sort of like okay.
5: It's really odd in. America. I think it's a hangover from prohibition. Um, mm-hmm. I went to university at Northwestern in Chicago, actually in Evanston, um, a little bit north of the city. And um, that was the home of the Christian Women's Temperance League and really, um, you know, one of the, the early sources of prohibition. And I think the, and it's still a dry town. I mean, it's a university town, but it's a dry Mm -hmm. town. You couldn't get a drink. That was very hard for me to wrap my head around that coming from (laughs) Australia uh, to Chicago and and realizing that, you know, we had to go a long way to get a drink. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's still this attitude, I mean, which is good, I think. Uh, I know in Australia and Britain, um, binge drinking, especially among young men is a real problem um, and causes a lot of violence and uh, mayhem. Um, And so it's kind of a good thing that people don't get rowdy in in America with drinking so much. I mean, you can go to a Broadway show and they will give you a glass of wine, which is like as big as a bucket. Mm -hmm. um, And you can have as many as you like. And people are not brawling in the aisles um, (laughs) at intermission, which would happen if you had a lot of, you know, Hard drinking cultures, mm-hmm. um, and so I mean that's kind of a good thing, but I think it's gone way over the top. I mean the fact that um, the drinking age is twenty one for young people. I know from my own kids who came to America on various sporting excursions uh, when they were at school. That, um, that, you know, what that meant was that, uh, rather than underage drinking, which occurs in Australia and England and places, which is really, I think, fine. It's just experimental mm-hmm. uh, drinking with a legal substance. Um, in, in America, because it's harder to get a drink, um, kids, are smoking marijuana at school. Um, right. and, and that's, that's a much more problematic issue because, you know, alcohol is illegal and therefore you haven't broken that kind of wall. A child hasn't broken that wall that's, well, I'm, I'm taking an illegal substance, what's the difference if I take a different one like, you know, cocaine yeah. or heroin or, you know, meth or whatever. Um, and I know that, you know, for so many years we've been told about the reefer madness, uh, don't say no to drugs, Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi You know, craziness and Nancy Reagan.
3: Yeah, sorry, Nancy. Nancy (laughs) The opposite, yeah, (laughs) Nancy
5: Reagan. And you know, so it's really uncool to be anti-drugs, especially if you're from that generation that grew up with Cheech and Chong and a lot of, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the cool, or at least in the aftermath of that cool 1960s, 1970s psychedelic era, um, where drugs, you know, that was. That was sort of the thing that our elders were doing. And so by the time, uh, the next generation came, came of age, it was completely normal and it was, um, part, you know, hooked into music and, and, and celebrity and anything you wanted to do. And so we've had, I guess, 40 years of right. normalization of drug use and coolification of it. Um, and, and i uh, i think it's been really detrimental to mental health uh and and you know i mean just to 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 the culture yeah. um you know pot pot i know from my own misspent youth mm-hmm. it just saps you of energy and enterprise it's the most loser drug you could ever think of <laughs> and it has this cachet as being just so safe zen and hip mm-hmm. and and safe um and so, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I just think alcohol is bad. It has problems, mm-hmm. but it's been with us for a long time. Humans are going to need some sort of mind altering drug. We chose long ago that it be alcohol. Um, and it's relatively safe. Um, and I, I think we'd be better off just focusing on having fun with the one legal drug rather than, you know, trying to supplement it with all sorts of other crazy drugs, because there'll always be something new. And we now see fentanyl, um, Mm -hmm. the ultimate expression of, um, you know, optimizing um, illegal drugs. And it's just, you know, it's lethal.
3: Right. So I mentioned that that piece was from 2019. I think that's around when you moved from Australia to New York. Is that right?
5: Yeah, that's right. July 2019.
3: So we talk a lot on this show about people moving because, you know, as you know, there's been this migration in America over the COVID years, um, but you made an international move and you did it before COVID. So how's that been for you?
5: It's been great and weird uh, because of COVID, I guess. And, um, you know, I am I was actually born in Jamaica, Queens. So oh, really? I'm a, a kind of a native born New Yorker, although wow. my accent doesn't, doesn't tell you that, but um, <laughs> And my parents were journalists. My father was a foreign correspondent and in New York. Um, and so uh, you know, I was born here. We lived um, you know, in London, and we lived in uh, Tokyo for six years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to an American school. I had this very American, strangely American upbringing. Um, which was a hyper-American suburban upbringing in Tokyo because wow. I went to an international school. Mm-hmm. My friends were American, their parents were diplomats or uh, my best friend lived on the Pan-American compound. Um, and that was like the Truman Show. You know, it was behind, <laughs> it was a gated community with these manicured lawns and cul-de-sacs mm-hmm. and little American bungalows. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we used to, Uh, You know, I read the Bobsey Twins and um, all sorts of sort of old American classics, uh, children's classics. I didn't know that this was bizarre and the real America had changed, Um, but we were living in this sort of capsule um, of Americana as Mm -hmm. uh, sort of interpreted uh, through Tokyo um, in the 1960s and 70s. And, uh, and then, then my parents decided that, um, the family needed to, uh, sort of live a normal lifestyle, not an expat lifestyle. So they went back to my mother's home country, which was Australia. And that was a huge culture shock for us kids, my sisters and I. Um, how old were you? I was, uh, 10, 11. Um, and, you know, I, I just thought of myself as a, an American kid and here, you know, speaking Japanese. Um, living this sort of strange wow. international lifestyle. And then we were in the sort of the suburbs of Perth, um, which is a real outpost mm-hmm. in Western Australia mm-hmm. and among the sand dunes. And, uh, so that was, that was quite a culture shock. I remember my mother ushering my sister and I, who were both very indoor kids, uh, living in Tokyo, ushering us out for a picnic, which we just didn't want to do, but we Im- immediately, Encountered all these horrible creatures and came running back screaming okay. to my mother, saying there were dinosaurs and blue mm-hmm. tongues, and you know, there were just lizards and, and sort of yeah. fauna and flora that we, we didn't enjoy. Right. Um, but look, being, being kids, we uh, adapted. Um, I almost overnight changed my accent. I remember practicing, um, in bed at night how to so say funny. bath and not bath. Um, right. and so transformed. Uh, overnight and fit in um, like a good Aussie. And my mother, um, you know, born in a farm in Western Australia, very Australian, she was horrified um, by my accent. She said, darling, you sound like an Ocker, which is like a redneck. And right. I thought, great, I've done it. <laughs> I've achieved my goal. And so, yeah.
3: Yeah. Do you feel, I mean, do you think you'd go back to Australia?
5: Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, our our grown up children are there. Um, mm. and, you know, we, we left, uh, only for 18 months. I had, mm. um, I, I lived off and on in America a lot. Uh, I, you know, gone to university, as I said, in Northwestern and worked in Boston, worked in Chicago, I worked in New York. And, um, but then when I went back to Australia, I, I married a, a New Zealander actually, but um, he was living in Australia. And so, uh, my, my married life has been, um, in Australia and our kids are, um, you know, very rooted in that country and, and, you know, we have a house and a dog and the whole thing. And, and I only came to mm-hmm. the New York Post for 18 months um, to cover the 2020 election mm-hmm. uh, because it's sort of an adventure. Um, cause our, our kids had gone off to university. Um, and because my uh, former editor in Australia, fantastic journalist called Cole Allen mm-hmm. um, was the editor-in-chief of the New York Post and he asked me to come over and, you know, I thought it would be fun um, to cover this momentous election um, and uh, so we, we arrived sort of midway through 2019 um, and had about six normal months in New York at its <laughs> best um, right. before, boom, uh, the pandemic hit and mm. uh, and everything, the world changed.
3: We're going to take a quick break and be right back on the Carol Markowitz show.
2: do you think of
3: yourself as a New Yorker now? Are you like fully adapted or somewhat? I mean, again, you were born there. So maybe, maybe you've been a New Yorker all along.
5: Yeah. I mean, I've sort of thought of myself a little bit as a New Yorker all my life only because Mm -hmm. my father um, was just such a, he grew up in New Zealand, but he was just such a a fan of America and um, used to read John O'Hara when he was young and um, was so proud to have a daughter who was an American and a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my parents used to sort of tease me about it um, and, and sort of boost it. Um So I always had a, a great affinity for uh, America and for New York, but, um, but I guess now I'm here, I just, I, I don't feel like that. I mean, I feel very yeah. much, um, you know, a foreigner, I guess, mm-hmm. but, I mean, I I've, I've felt a foreigner wherever I lived because right. I was in a way. Um, and so uh, I, and that's what happens to a lot of kids that grow up, um, you know, among a, a lot of different cultures is mm-hmm. that they're uh, chameleons and can fit in anywhere but also don't really fit in anywhere. So um, I guess that's the very definition of a globalist is right. what, <laughs> what the, the Trump people I, w-
3: I won't tell anyone.
5: Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
3: Well, so a question I ask all of my guests, and I think you're uniquely positioned to answer it, is what do you think is our largest cultural or societal problem in America, and is it solvable? I feel like you have a unique view, you know.
5: I think if you live in America um, and, you know, you sort of just used, you're like a frog in boiling water, you haven't really noticed um, what's been going on, but Mm -hmm. there's a really peculiar Um, leniency about um, illegal drug use um, in this country. And you can see it um, just legally. So many states are now um, legalising pot or legalising other drugs and it just has become so normalised. And, um, you know, I mean, this is a country that carries on about the evils of having two alcoholic drinks or smoking a cigarette or Mm -hmm. vaping. Um, And yet, the really harmful substances that people are ingesting, as a matter of course, aren't even mentioned, and um, and and it's it's odd. I mean, I think it really is a like a multi-decade propaganda mission by an, a global group of people who, for some reason, are into drug liberalisation. And mm-hmm. this is, you know, the World Health Organization has been doing it. Um, there's there's been this push in the medical um, you know, field to uh, sort of equate alcohol with drug- other drugs. They they call it alcohol and other drugs, even mm-hmm. though one is a tried and trusted through the centuries legal drug, um, and the other are illegal, and we don't know uh, exactly how they work on the brain um, and the addiction issues with them. Um, and and so and 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 Americans also have this peculiar relationship with pharmaceuticals Um, you know i mean you you watch television there are so many nowhere else in the world have i ever Mm -hmm. seen so many drug ads um and you know they're they're just people prancing through meadows with daffodils Mm -hmm. and sunshine (laughs) and you know some awful sounding drug is going to transform their life um take away their pain um, make them have happy families. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Americans pop a pill for everything. You know, if they're constipated, instead of changing their diet and eating yeah. healthily, they take a constipation pill. Um, you know, if they're fat, instead of not eating, they take a pill. Um, if they're sad, um, mm-hmm. they take a pill. Like it, life's normal realities that you, you, you know, that that people through the eons have dealt with by changing their behavior. Or changing their environment or getting rid of toxic people. Um, the American culture is to pop a pill. And so I think that's hand in glove with this, um, this illicit drug culture. And, and I think it again is just symptomatic of a spiritual absence, um, right. which is odd because I think America is the most religious country I've, I've lived in. And certainly in, in the West, um, and, uh, you know, People are, are very overt about their religiosity, um, and almost to to a fanatical extent in some co- quarters. Um, you know, I, I admire the the religious faith um, that Americans are, are happy to exhibit. I, I like the fact that their churches and their synagogues um, in so many places are overflowing, unlike, say, in Europe.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: But by the same token, I think um, you know. Uh, for instance, the sort of religious fervor around Donald Trump just seems to me insane. Um, there really are people who think that he's the second coming of Jesus Christ, right. and that Joe Biden is Satan. Now, I like Donald Trump, and I don't like Joe Biden. I think uh-huh. Donald Trump was a good president, and Donald and Joe Biden is a complete disaster. But I don't, I don't see Joe Biden as Satan, and I don't see. Donald Trump as God. And yet some people do see that. And I think it, it sort of, um, unpicks their brain because they then aren't making rational decisions. Um, and they're sort of allowing fate to take over because they think that there's this existential battle. And right. again, you know, that's, that's sort of the opposite of what I'm saying. And I think that there's such a schizophrenic, um, attitude in America towards, um, you know, religion, spirituality, you've got the real godless crew who Mm -hmm. are looking for anything to fill that spiritual gap. And then you have people at the other extreme who um, have just, uh, you know, allowed their um, belief in, 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 or their religious beliefs to take over their kind of rational selves.
3: Interesting. It's funny that is you equate that to the drug thing, which I, I, I get, you know, it's people who are looking for something, right? They're looking for something to make them feel better or to believe in, but you're right. It, it takes a lot more work to, you know, m- make the changes that will make you feel better instead of like popping a pill or believing in a politician or you know yeah. the rest of that. Do you feel like you live a public life? Like, are you recognized a lot?
5: Um, I try not to. And I guess, you know, the great thing about New York is that there are so many people here and, mm-hmm. um, you know, everyone's fairly anonymous. Um, and, uh, there's a, there's a pub that, uh, a lot of New York Post people go to that we love, um, Beach mm-hmm. Cafe. And, uh, and that's about the only place that I'll, I'll be <laughs> recognized. Um, and I like it that way. You know, I, I, I've always been thought of myself as a writer. I'm, now I'm on Fox a lot um, mm-hmm. as a contributor, and um, and you know that that changes things because your your face and your personality and people think they know you and right um, and it gives you a lot more
0: mm-hmm.
5: I guess publicity and um, and a higher profile which mm-hmm. every journalist or every media per- we're not journalists anymore we're media people is supposed right. to crave I don't crave mm-hmm. that at all I don't like it. Um, yeah, and, and I think it also, if you're a writer, if you're a journalist, you're meant to be an observer and you're meant to be fly on the wall. And I think that's what I'm best at or have been in the past anyway. And, um, and I think when you become the story, um, you lose that and you lose your ability to, um, to write and to, to sort of reflect the reality that you see around you.
3: Yeah. So you had this best selling book, Laptop from Hell. You- obviously have a very exciting and interesting and accomplished career. Do you feel like you've made it?
5: (laughs) Um, You know, my instinct is to say, um, oh gosh, no, you know, I would never (laughs) be so presumptuous just to say that. But Mm -hmm. to be honest, um, I I have to say that, you know, so many items on my bucket list um, so far I've achieved. And one was to write a book and to have it be a bestseller is um, just fantastic. And, and especially on a, on a topic I think so important was suppressed, mm-hmm. censored before the 2020 election. And I think, um, you know, that the story about Hunter Biden's laptop, but mainly what it told us about Joe Biden and his corruption, I think was a story that should have been known by the American voter. And so it was a big thrill to be able to write that and, and, and bring it to so many people um and so that and then look i mean the most important thing for me and i think for all of us is family and um my kids are now adults you know young adults and they're fantastic we just spent christmas with them and um and they're just the most wonderful human beings and i think i've made it because as a mother um because uh, my kids are sort of they're there i mean if i died tomorrow I know they would be fine. Um, I mean, I don't want to. I want to. I want to right. be there for grandkids mm-hmm. and and marriages yes. and and all the wonderful things that come with adult children. But um, but I think in terms of making it, um, you know, I have a happy marriage and um, and and a great family. So um, that's that's I think crucial. That's what it's and, all about. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
3: Well, I've loved having you on, Miranda. Um, end here with your best tip for my listeners on how they can improve their lives.
5: Thanks, Carol. Um, look, I think probably of all the wisdom that I've accumulated in my now quite long life, um, I'd say the only regrets I've ever had have been saying no um, to opportunities because I thought, well, I'm too busy at the moment. You know, I've got kids, I need to concentrate on them, etc. cetera. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you just say yes, things will work out. You'll be able to manage whatever burdens or time constraints you have. And when you say yes to one thing, other doors open. Um, there are so many opportunities out there. So, um, that's, that's my advice. Always say yes to an opportunity. Don't put it off. It won't come back again. You always think that, that yeah. it will come back. It never does. You lose it. Uh, other opportunities will come up. It's not the end of the world, but I think just always say yes. Put your hand up. Um, life's for living.
3: Thank you so much. That was really great. Miranda Devine, her book is Laptop from Hell. Check it out. You are fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Carol. Great to be with you. Thanks so much for joining us on the Carol Markowitz show. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
4: Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids?